There's never a shortage of conversation amongst nonprofit leaders about how they feel about asking for money, their insecurity, discomfort, anxiety. Should I ask during the first meeting? How do I know how much to ask for? When should I ask? Should I bring materials or follow up? What if the donor asks a question I actually can't answer? If they say, I'll think about it, then what do I do? But how much time do we think about what the donor wants, needs, and feels during these conversations? We talk the talk about understanding that we are in the relationship building business as development professionals, but how good are we at it, really? My guest and her husband became members of the 1% literally overnight. What a remarkable opportunity. And they became hell-bent on being five-star philanthropists. And as they became sought out for sizable gifts to an array of causes, my guest learned some hard truths. Consider all those feelings and insecurities that fundraisers feel. Have you ever thought how that lands at a donor meeting and what all of that feels like for a donor? My guest, like me, is a compassionate truth teller. She will disrupt you a bit sharing some unflattering stories about being asked for money, but her deep commitment to investing in the sector and causes she cares about leads her to be a problem solver. So her book ruffles some feathers and offers success strategies, creating deep and lasting relationships between organizations and donors. That offers donors the gift that comes with meaningful engagement in your work, and it's a gift that runs both ways. Time to learn about establishing and maintaining effective partnerships between donors and organizations to help causes worldwide. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at JoanGary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Lisa Zola Greer is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, convener, and the author of Philanthropy Revolution. Over the last decade, the Greer Home in Beverly Hills has been home to nearly 200 charitable salons and events connecting nonprofits with donors and the community. In 2020, Lisa was appointed by the Speaker of the California State Assembly, Anthony Rendon, as a commissioner of the state, California State Commission on the Status of Women and Girls. In addition, Lisa sits on the board of the New Israel Fund and serves on the executive committee of the Cedar sinai Board of Governors. She has also served as commissioner and chair of the Beverly Hills Cultural Heritage Commission and trustee of the Jewish Community Foundation of L.A. and as a board member of many organizations, such as the L.A. District Attorney's Crime Prevention Foundation, Make-A-Wish of Greater L.A., Girl Scouts of Greater L.A., and the list goes on. Earlier in her career, Lisa was a studio exec at NBC and Universal, and she founded and led several companies, including a management consulting and strategic advisory firm specializing in digital media and entertainment businesses. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us and for this insightful and, dare I say, provocative book. Thank you so much. It's a privilege to be here. So <clears throat> what a remarkable gift 
to wake up almost overnight and know that you'd never have to worry about money again. You said something really powerful in your book very early on, and you said, and I quote, of all the freedoms I anticipated having when our lives were so dramatically altered, the one that excited me the most was the freedom to give, specifically to give of our money. You talked about being active givers who would be involved, engaged, enriched by the work of the organizations you were about to support. But things didn't turn out exactly as you planned. And that is, at its heart, your book, Philanthropy Revolution and the Story You Tell. So tell folks who have not read your book why this book is called Philanthropy Revolution and what's the elevator pitch about this book? Okay, great. Thank you. So uh, let's see, the elevator pitch, I'll do the... Um, to the elevator pitch part first and then why it's called that. Um, so the elevator pitch is that I care deeply about nonprofits and about all the good work that uh, people in the nonprofit world do. And I see a real problem with the way it's done. I see people asking the same donors for money over and over again and ignoring a huge amount of the population who could be giving. Um, mm. I see $150 billion plus dollars in donor advice funds that's sitting there that's not going out to individual charities, which is a whole lot of money by anyone's count, and, yep. uh, and, and very little being done about it. And I see an industry where people are doing the same thing over and over again that in some cases they've done the same way for as much as 100 years, uh, So, which leads me to the title. Uh, so Philanthropy Revolution, the idea was that it's it was originally called saving giving uh, and saving, which which is nice, but it, it didn't feel like it was enough. It didn't feel like it was. Um, uh, it, it, I'm trying to ring. I'm trying to sound an alarm to the industry and I'm trying to sound that alarm and say, you guys have to change. You have to revise the way you're doing things. You have to wake up. Uh, you have to understand how there's donors out there, lots of them, who want to give you money, who want to believe in what you do, but the way that you're doing it is can be is often so off-putting by many organizations and at many times that it actually makes somebody who's there with a full heart, ready to give, and gets turned off and then doesn't. And I see that as a crisis. And so the title, I'm, I'm always into the idea of titles. Um, so I write this book and I want to call it Nonprofits are messy. And I'm told by the publisher, no, you have to call it Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. So I'm always interested in how you select. And, and the choice you made between uh, the, the two titles was that the one you selected uh, was bold, right? It's a, it's a clarion call, if you will. Yeah, it, it, exactly that. It, it, it is a clarion call where the other one doesn't really say that. It's kind of, well, you know, saving giving can be a process. It can take a while. This is, I want people to be, you know, woken up by a very loud, you know, gong and say, you have to wake up now. You have to look at how you're doing things. You can't keep doing things the same way you've done them over and over again. And, and actually, a lot of the world has moved on and is doing things differently. And a lot of people who who solicit people for money are doing it in a different way. But for some reason, this sector hasn't moved as quickly or uh, agile in, in such an agile way. 
So it's an it's an interesting thing. Um, just as a quick aside, I feel like the pandemic, um, you know, the the uh, the opportunity that challenging times present is that it was a bit of a wake up call to many nonprofits to become more nimble, to become more agile, to think about their work in a different way. Um, and so my my clarion call in twenty twenty one has been really to just. To, to really embrace that notion that the business as usual was was never actually all that wasn't really working that well to begin with. And so what I'm hearing you say, Lisa, is that there are sort of two components to this revolution. One is the sort of big fat missed opportunities of, you know, folks who have billions of dollars in DAFs, donor advised funds, millennial donors, all of those folks, so that we just keep asking the same people for money. And we don't do that. We don't do that very well. So there's two pieces to the revolution, right? Okay. So let's start with the second piece first. Um, you talk in your book about organizations that you feel really strongly about treating you and your wealth in ways that I would describe as unexpected, unexpected to be kind, uh, rude, sexist, and disrespectful to be clearer. Um, <clears throat> here's a quote you, you talked about a donor, uh, a conversation you had with an executive director who said to you, of course this year will reflect a significant increase in your giving. Of course. Right. I'll take hubris for 200, Alex. <laughs> um, so your book is chock full of stories like this. Um, what do you see as the root cause? Here I am, an executive director, right? I know that money equals programs. I know that you care about my organization or you wouldn't be sitting with me, maybe, right? How can I, how is it that I screw this up? So I think that, unfortunately, I think a lot of fundraisers um, and a lot of people in general just aren't comfortable with the idea of money and are less comfortable with the idea of people with money. And I think because of maybe a few bad actors here and there, maybe rich people you see on, you know, old TV shows or something where people are, are, are bitchy and difficult. Um, somehow that becomes their interpretation of what rich people are like and that rich people are bad and rich people are, you know, did something bad to get where they were and aren't very smart. I actually have a um, concept that I may do one day. I don't know if I will or not, but but it, 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 this is how it works, that, that there's a survey, like a survey monkey that goes to a thousand nonprofit um, professionals, fundraisers. Okay. And the question, there's only one question on the survey, but none of the uh, people who fill out the survey will ever, it will, it'll be completely anonymous. No one will ever know that they are, uh, what their name is. And if you really okay. believe that and you put a thousand of those people together and the survey has one question and the one question is, do you think donors are stupid? And I feel like if that happened, and I, I wish I didn't feel this way, but based on my experience, I feel like at least half of them would say yes. And I, that's a real problem to be talking to somebody to create a relationship with somebody that you already think is stupid or crazy or a pain in the neck or whatever it is. 
that's I, who wants to start a relationship that way? So if you start a relationship, if you believe that about the person, and then you say to me, I want to create a relationship, really by definition, it's going to be a, um, a stilted relationship at best. Uh, it will not, it's going to be completely inauthentic and, and it's not going to work. So if your idea for raising money is to just ask me a million times, I, someone told me the other day they got four emails from the same organization an hour apart one day. If, if, if that's going to make me so annoyed, I'll give you money. Okay, maybe that works. But guess what? I'm not going to give you money again. And uh, I might give you money to say goodbye. And so the number of, as, as you, you well know, and I'm sure most of your listeners know, the percentage of people who give a second time after giving a first time continues to go down. And this yes. year it came out that it's 18% of people who give a first time will give again the next year. And I have to think that a lot of that is because people have just been, uh, you know, kind of bamboozled into giving you money because for whatever reason, but there's not a relationship there. And the idea of having, of an, from a nonprofit perspective, of having to go find those, uh, you know, 80% of people all over again the next year seems to me as a donor to be an incredible lack of, uh, of concern about resources and a waste of resources. And it's also just not fair to all the people who are doing that because on both sides, it's not fair to anybody because it's such a waste of time. Do you think that the stupidity piece is part of um, that person's money story? That, that, that whatever their relationship to money, that somehow or another you either don't deserve it or you have it and I don't, or you didn't, you, and, and I suspect that, that there may be some sexism at play, like you didn't earn it or, right. And so there you come in, it's a little bit hard to come into an authentic relationship when you've already been sort of predisposed towards thinking about Lisa Greer a certain way, right? Right. And so that's one of the things that I'm doing in the book is I have decided to uh, really create a book because I didn't see there wasn't anything like this on the market there still isn't uh, but but really write a book kind of the way I talk and the way I would meet somebody at a cocktail party and talk to people about you know what this is what a donor looks like and it, it's really um shocking that uh, it, 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 quick little story um, yeah, I was going to actually ask you to sort of bring this, bring this, bring this to life for people because yeah. I do believe that that we don't think about what it feels like at that lunch or that event or that fill in the blank to be asked, right? So offer a couple of examples, and they're not. By the way, I think it's important for listeners to know that Lisa's story is not Lisa's story. And that Lisa is, as you heard from her intro, is part of a vast number of nonprofit organizations at every different level. And I want to talk about size of organization too, but not, but let's park that for now. So Lisa speaks for a lot of people when she tells whatever story she's about to tell us. Yeah, I think I, I speak for, uh, and I spent a year or two as I was thinking about writing the book and putting together some short stories. I talked to donors of all different types, all different backgrounds, uh, you know, some that, that have had money forever. I've talked to 80-year-olds. I talked to 20-year-olds. And I found that 
all of them had the same. In fact, I couldn't find anybody that hadn't had the same experiences that I'd had. Maybe not exactly with the same person at the same moment, but that sort of idea about, well, you know, of course you're going to give us more money. That has happened to everybody. And it feels really bad to everybody. Now, some people, you know, your question might be at that point, well, why are there not more stories about this? And the reason is that I've also asked a lot of donors, why isn't somebody else speaking out? And I think if you work for an organization, you're very tied to an organization or you have a reputation you have to protect, you, you might just say, you know, I don't want to get into it. It's not worth it. I just won't. And, and the answer is, I just won't give them any money. My question to those people was, well, how are you going to change things? How do they know yeah. what the change needs to be if you don't give them feedback? And the answer yep. I got over and over again is, if they call me and they're, I find them annoyed, I just hang up the phone. Or if they ask me for something, I just don't give them money and I avoid them. And I said, but then it's not going to change because nobody really knows. So somebody has to actually come out there and say, this is what it feels like. And so that's that's really why I did this. And and because, again, I, like you just said, I I see myself as a representative of gazillions of donors and and potential donors. There's a lot of potential donors out there that have had one uncomfortable interaction with a fundraiser and they're done. They just say, I yep. put it away and leave it to my cat. Something like that. Nothing against cats. But I love I love I love cats. I know. Um, but it's it's really um, it's it's very frustrating because that is an opportunity a plum opportunity sitting in front of you and fundraisers work way too hard to to have that opportunity there and then somebody else made that opportunity go away. So let's say there's a there's a 30-year-old who just uh, cashed in a lot of their tech company stock, whatever it is, and okay. they're single and they're trying to figure out what to do with it. Very, actually, very common scenario. Mm -hmm. um, so if their interaction was, you know, one of the interactions I talk about uh, in the book is, is one of these, a woman like this, she was in her, in her mid-20s, um, at, at one of the big, it's either Facebook or Google, she goes in, they have like a job fair. And in, in the job fair, they have all the little booths in a room. And instead, they had a nonprofit fair. And they had all these different booths in the room for different nonprofits. And they had the list given to everybody in advance. So she looked at the list and she researched everybody. And she said, I really want to get involved. I want to get involved. I'm a single person. I've got this money. I want to get involved in nonprofit and start giving. So she identified the organization she wanted to be part of, and she went up to their booth and she said, hi, put out her hand for a handshake and said, I just want to introduce myself. I work here and I um, would like to talk to you about being a part of your board of directors. And the answer she got from the woman at the other side of the table was, what could you at your age possibly contribute to our board of directors? So what's the chance that person gets tries again. Not not a whole lot. I mean, it was like, well, this is obviously a world that I, I'm not meant to be in that I'm not welcome to. And that's really a big loss for all of us. And so um so again, and unfortunately it's not a little push that's going to change people's minds to be aware of that. It is going to take a revolution and that's what I'm trying to do. So let's talk about an an actual ask and some experiences you've had there. Um you know uh, in the days before we had actual lunches and we would invite a donor prospect or a donor out for lunch. And you tell many stories in this book about how these interactions often feel. And I wondered if this, I really want a listeners board and staff to just sit with these, with a couple of these anecdotes. Um, now, I, I, I'm not, by the way, 
I am not exempt from having made some of these mistakes, and I, 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 I could be persuaded to share one myself. But I'll start with, I'll start with you and say, okay, so a, a couple of examples of things that that happen at lunches or coffees with uh, an executive director or a fundraiser that that exemplify this problem we have. Okay, great. Uh, I have, as you know, tons and tons of these. And unfortunately, they keep coming even after I've written the book. I, still- I was going to say, I wish you didn't have so many. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, and, and, and one thing I do want to put in here before I fully answer that is that everybody is a donor. And so if you go to the uh, mall and you want to buy something and uh, there's nowhere, you just want to give somebody your money and get out because you're buying a sweater or whatever it is, and there's no one to give your money to, you're not going to have a really good feeling about that place and and you're going to get really frustrated. So you've been in a situation where you're looking for somebody to give money to. Everybody's been in that situation and everybody has given something at some point, no matter how what, what, what the level of means are that you have. Everyone has given some jackets to a coat drive or has given, uh, you know, Girl Scout cookie, helped a Girl Scout troop. Everybody has. And so to say that a donor, you know, big capital D, is this different animal, is 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 a little bit offensive, actually. We're just people, too. We are people yes. who have had, you know, wonderful things happen to us, have been rewarded for hard work. Uh, and, and, you know, by the way, over 60% of donors today are first-generation wealth people, are people who did not inherit it. So, so talking to people like we look like the, I, I always use the, the scene from Mary Poppins, the original Mary Poppins, where you had the old bankers and they're trying to get the money out of a little boy's hand. That should not be the way that we look at, that anybody looks at, at giving. So to your question, the situations that have happened, there again, a whole lot of them, but let's start with the first one, which I have in the book, which is complimenting me about things that are incredibly fake and I shouldn't be complimented for. For example, I am not somebody who is Miss Birkenbag person. I do not make a big deal about, I usually bring my phone with, you know, cards stuck on the back of it. So to sit down and have somebody say to me, oh, I love your bag. That's so wonderful. I'm like, what are you talking about? Or if they say, oh, that's, they just, they do this thing, you know, oh, your hair, oh, your shirt, oh, your, whatever it is. And, oh, we're just so honored to meet you. Like, Really? Like, we, how do you develop a relationship from that? It already feels very strange. And if someone did that to me at a cocktail party, I would walk away. So, mm-hmm. so that is how most people start. And, um, and that I find really difficult. Another thing that's done is, is, I'm not sure which one to pick. Uh, my, 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 probably my, my, one of my favorite ones is, at the end of a lunch, we'll have a lunch and nobody asks me for money. And I think, isn't that great? This really was a friend raising thing or a get to know you thing or tell you about my organization. So I listen and, and I sit there for an hour and a half, sometimes more. And which is, by the way, an hour and a half, I'll never get back. And at the end of it, um, I go to leave. I pay the bill. I always pay the bill for these things. And I get up to leave and say, hey, it was so great to meet you. And they literally lean over to me and push me down by my shoulders and say, oh, no, 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 no. We're not done yet. I have to ask you something. And that is not okay. <laughs> I just, who would want that to happen to them? But it's happened to me more than once. And I, I, it's, 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 it's really, I, I can't imagine that there's anyone that if it was them in my seat, no matter what their situation is, anybody who would find that to be a comfortable conversation. Um, I'll give you one more just because there's so many good ones. Um, and that's that uh, there's, there's this thing that happens where somebody 
decades ago when they wrote, wrote these rules, I guess, decided that there should be somebody, when I'm asked for money as a donor, somebody asks me, they have to bring somebody to the meeting who is somebody who, I'm told this is philanthropy 101 or fundraising 101. They have to bring somebody who I know uh, to make me feel comfortable. That was, that was, I'm told that was the reason for it because there's some okay. And so I can't tell you how many times the person they bring is somebody that I don't know. And very often the connection that I have to that person is somebody I don't care for. And the person's sitting there wondering what to do. And then, and I'm wondering like, why, why, like, why is this happening? And the person kind of nods, doesn't usually say a lot. And then all, and they are uncomfortable too to be there because someone told them from the organization, you have to be there. I really need you. And then at a certain point in the conversation, it gets really quiet and they look at each other and they go, you know, well, and they kind of move their head a little bit and, and they kind of, you know, like they're doing some super secret kind of message. And that what they're doing, I took me, a, I don't know, two or three of these to figure it out is they're saying, is it time for me to make the ask? Do we ask for I money see. now? And I can see it. It's, it's four feet in front of me. So I, this is not. And so the whole idea of having this like secret thing and, and then all of a sudden they do their ask is, is just actually strange. And I don't know how anybody would feel that comfortable um, with that kind of interaction. So those are those are pretty common pieces to the to these meetings. So I have absolutely brought someone with me from time to time to a donor ask. Um, having said that, um, it is tailored to my relationship that I have with that donor and what I know about that person. So we had a donor in Seattle and I had never met him before. Actually, he gave quite a good amount of money, but he was a very introverted person. And, um, he actually, we cultivated a relationship over email and he was very interested in a particular area of our program work. And, um, he said, when you are next in Seattle, I would love to have dinner with you. And I said, I would love to bring Glenda with me. Glenda runs the program that I know you have spoken about that you really, um, that really resonates for you. Would that be okay? Would that be something you, you would consider? And he said, I'd love to meet Glenda. And I happen to know that Glenda can talk about the programs with greater ease, more compellingly than I ever could, because she does that. And um, so I, there are situations where bringing someone makes great sense, but it has to be tailored to the relationship that you have developed with that individual. And that's kind of the heart of all of this, isn't it really, Lisa, is that, um, that it is a transaction for so many fundraisers. And I, I guess that's what I'm, I'm curious about is, is the root cause just so driven by my revenue targets that like, can we cut to the chase and I'll ask you for money while we're checking our coats so that I can, that I can chalk up that number and get closer to my goal? Are executive directors and development directors actually badly trained? Do they, will EDs say, I would love to build a relationship with a donor, but I, I, I don't have much access, right? Lisa's so busy. She's on all those boards. If I get one lunch, I think I fit the jackpot. I better ask at that lunch. So what's the, I know I've asked about five questions in that one thing, but what's the, what's the root cause? Um, 
do you do you think it starts with this notion of I've got to hit my revenue targets? So so very often I think about you know if you give money uh, at where was it I think it's at um, Panda Express and when they're doing a charity thing and they ring a little bell I feel like somebody is in a boiler room ringing a little bell if they can come back and say I got money from her which doesn't make me feel like a real human it makes me feel like I'm a you know piggy bank really that you just want to you, know, you just want to crash the piggy bank and break it open and run and take the money and I'm just the piggy bank and and that is just not not a good feeling. And it, it, it has nothing to do with why I might want to give. Uh, so I, I think that that is a problem. I think that training is a problem. I think that um, somehow when these rules were created and that they've, they've kept being uh, part of our industry, uh, they, no one really thought about how they would feel if they were put in that same position. I think the person that you brought was a perfect example of how that should be done. And actually what that, what that shows is is really the root of all of this, I think, which is that a fundraiser has to be a good listener. And that you were an excellent listener because the person told you what they were looking for. And it's actually was better for you to bring that person than not. And to bring anybody instead of bringing somebody else because you actually listened and, and internalized what that person was looking for. And you brought something that would help that person feel good about what they were doing and, 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 and want to contribute more because it was a real relationship. You can't have a relationship with somebody if you don't listen. And so I think that in, in finding fundraisers and really anybody at nonprofits, because anybody at nonprofits should be asking for money at some point, it needs to be, these people need to be really good listeners and realize that all donors are not the same, just like all people are not the same. And everybody's individual. And if you listen to them and you hear what they're saying and you understand what's, what, what's a fit for them and what they're looking for, and you don't, and you act with integrity, you don't make up stuff and answers, you actually tell them the truth. They are going to trust you a lot more and they're much more likely to become a long-term donor. So uh, I, I think it's a combination of everything you talked about. And yep. I am trying through the book and through my blog, I'm trying to, uh, and talking to at lots of different, and lots, to lots of different people in lots of different ways, I'm trying to get the message through that just think about how you would feel if somebody did that to you and said those things to you. And if you if you're honest about it, if you listen, if you if you do it from the heart, it'll all work out. You're listening to Nonprofits Are Messy. Thank you for joining me today. In case you haven't picked up my latest book, during COVID lockdown, I took time from Netflix binging to rewrite my first edition of Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. I wanted to make sure that board and staff leaders had a new guide to help them to navigate a very different world, one where old rules don't apply and some new rules will be critical to thriving. This version is in paperback and you can learn more about it at book.joangary.com. And now back to the podcast. So I'm gonna to try to put myself in the shoes of the listener for a moment and imagine so I'm, you know, I hear that Lisa Greer is a um, very generous philanthropist and that she gives to causes that seem to align with ours. And I find out through, you know, one or two degrees of separation that I can gain some kind of connection or conversation or interaction with you. And I, um, and I want to, um, right. And I see there's a, a good potential of an alignment between what you care about and what we do. 
And I think to myself, people are asking Lisa Greer for money all the time. I'm probably only going to get one bite at this apple. That, that, that This is, a, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So when I ask you if you would like to have lunch with me, um, is, is it assumed on your part that I am going to ask you for money? Do I say that I am going, I would like, I mean, the language I would typically use, I would like to talk about how you can become more involved with our organization and talk about what that looks like, right? Because it may be that you're actually, you know, maybe you'll give some money or maybe you're giving is done for the year and that you might actually make an interesting board member, right? I don't know what that connection looks like, but I, I think a lot of people struggle with the, if I ask Lisa Greer, will you have lunch with me? So I can ask you for money that Lisa Greer will go running, screaming in the other direction. And I happen to think that that is untrue. Okay. So so there's, I, I'm going to pretend this really is me and that you've really okay. asked it just like that. So the first thing is that um, it just the idea that you would think that I am somebody who, that, that you're going to have this one shot with me at this one lunch already shows that you haven't done any research on me because uh-huh. I don't like lunches. I don't, I mean, I eat lunch, but most of the giving that we've done, and I would say all of our larger giving has not happened because of a lunch. It's happened because... I heard about something and thought it was interesting, or I wanted to help my, you know, my husband who has Crohn's disease and make sure there wasn't Crohn's anymore in the world, things like that. And then I actually called the organization and said, I would like to give you money. And as you know, from the beginning of the book, and those, those of your readers who've read it, um, it took me seven months to give, to get the, this my medical institution to actually accept my uh, multi-million dollar gift because they didn't know who I was. And, and that's, it's, it's so, so it wasn't a lunch. A lunch didn't ever happen when that actually, for those, for our first two big gifts, there was no lunch. So, so I prefer, uh, because I'm me and people like, uh, I know a lot of my friends prefer, send me some information or let's have a call or really now that we're all used to it, let's have a Zoom call. I am yep. perfectly happy with that, but give me some information as to what you do. It doesn't have to be, well, if you come to the lunch, I'm good. That's what it feels like. It feels like if you come to the lunch, then you get to find out about our organization. And or or so and so told me, and you owe them. You know, you, you, you because so and so said that you would meet with me. You have to meet with me. That those are not compelling, really. I, I would like someone to say, uh, "Would you like to sit and meet in person? Would you like to know some more about our, our organization first? Would you like me to tell you?" And you know what? The answer, the secret sauce in all of this is just ask the person. They're a person. Ask them. Do you like to? Do, you know how do you, how do you go about when you give? How do you you know how do you do that? And and the other thing that you, you say is, I, I like, instead of saying, uh, I, I'd like to talk to you about being involved in an organization, that for me feels like code, because I okay. thought at the beginning that involved meant you would volunteer, be, or because I was a volunteer before I had money most of the time, or, or that I would give you some other recommendations of people who might give, or I might help you with some resources for putting together your gala. I don't know what that is. So what I recommend people say is, let's just be really, really honest and just say, I'd like to talk to you about financially contributing to our organization. Or, and if you put that in, then then there's no surprise. And at this meeting, I'd like to give you some information. Would you like some in advance or would you rather I tell you myself? 
everybody's a different human and people have different preferences. And if you listen, if you ask, it, it shows that you actually want a relationship as opposed to a transaction. And so if you ask the question, how do you like to do it? I am ready to answer that question for you. But nobody ever asks or very rarely does anybody ask. So you, you quote Mark Twain in your book, it's wiser to find out than suppose. And, um, and you also talk about, you know, sort of one of the key attributes of an excellent development professional is being a good listener, right? It is not about how much can I vomit out about my organization in the briefest amount of time, hoping that it's a bad metaphor, but hoping that something will stick and you'll give me money, right? So... Um, offer, you know, I, I work with people and, and help them to develop better skills at development. And I, when I say things, well, why didn't you ask the prospect that question, yeah. right? What's, what are the kinds of questions that are, when you, when you're asked them, you say, this person kind of gets it. Or like, I, I, I just a quick example. I like to hear what, what your philanthropy is about. Like, what's it about for you? Like, right. Or what, what causes do you, that are meaningful to you and your family? Right. It, I, I like talking about that. Um, and, and some people say, oh, well, I, I don't want them to tell what other, I, that's, that's, private for me to ask them what other organizations they contribute to. So I guess what's okay to ask as I learn about you as a philanthropist, as I'm building the relationship that many of us don't actually work to build. <laughs> so, so back to the Mark Twain quote, um, make yeah. the assumption that, Oh, I can't, like you just said, if somebody's thinking, well, I can't ask that because you know, that's, that's rude or it's, it's, it, it should be kept quiet or whatever. That's an assumption. And, and you know what they say about the word assume, right? It becomes an ass of you and me. And, and, and that, that assumption piece is, is just incredibly counterproductive to a fundraiser asking for money. Um, and, and because, again, people are all different. There are people who will only want the lunch. There are people who love to do that. There are people who like three lunches. There's people who like one lunch. There's people who like to meet at a bar, whatever it is, just like you and me, we all have different things we like to do. I love your question about, I'd love to get to know, you know, get to know a little about you and your philanthropy and the kinds of things you give money to. However, I did have somebody ask me that once. And when I told them what I was into, which was not what they were selling, um, they may have a funny looking look to their face and then they tried to tell me that their organization was better at that because their organization had a division that did a similar thing. And I really should fund that organization instead. So oh. that's just not okay. So no. the, the proper answer to that, in my opinion, for me is, is, well, that's wonderful. And you know what? I think that's, that's really good. And our organization is a little bit different than the ones that you're, you're working with. And if that's something you're interested in, great. And if not, you know, kudos to you for giving, kudos to you for giving to uh, trying to make the world a better place or trying to work with our community and, 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 and just let it go. And guess what happens? Very often, if somebody does that, the donor gives them money anyway, because they've been honest and they've been, and, and it's, it shows that it's not a transactional uh, situation. It is, it, it's about building a relationship. And uh, there was a wonderful article in uh, as, as COVID was starting by a woman who ran a uh, dog rescue organization somewhere on the East Coast. 
And she said that she felt that she, while people were, uh, you know, needed medical attention and needed food and, and kids weren't in schools and all of that, that she had no, uh, it, it wasn't fair for her to ask for money at that time because she was taking care of dogs and she had enough money to make sure the dogs were okay for what we thought was a few months, whatever. But so she said to her donors, she sent them a letter and she said, please don't send us money now. Please instead send money to any of these organizations. And I believe she gave a list of things that were important to her and said, I'm doing it too. And I, this would be really great. And guess what happened? People said, oh my God, that is so amazing. And here's some money for the dogs. So totally. that, it should be a lesson. Yes, absolutely. Um, size of organization, when you think about, so there, there are probably some people listening saying, oh, this probably only happens with big donors and big organizations. Um, do the amount of zeros of a budget have any relevance in this conversation? None whatsoever, uh, except for the part where if an organization has a fundraiser who hasn't been trained in these, what I consider semi-arcane ways, uh, but they're just a good listener and all the other things that, that, that I've, I've written about that you should look for in a fundraiser, uh, then actually it is easier for me to give money, to consider giving money to a small organization because um, I feel like they're being honest. They haven't learned yet that they're supposed to imagine or assume things about me. Um, but but that would be the only difference, and that's only sometimes. So, uh, but as far as it, it's interesting, you're saying that some people would suggest that perhaps I'm only talking about big organizations. I've had exactly the opposite as well. I've had done a number of seminars where people have said, uh, one or two people have said, "Oh, you must only work for small with small organizations because big organizations would never make those mistakes." And so, uh, just the fact that you just said that shows that. It, it, it has nothing to do. You're thinking it's all big. Some people think it's all small. Guess what? It, it has nothing to do with the size of the organization whatsoever. So we are having a conversation with Lisa Greer, who's a philanthropist, an entrepreneur, a convener, and we're talking about her book, Philanthropy Revolution. And the conversation is about the experience of the donor. Uh, you can find lots of podcasts I've done on the, uh, the experience of asking and developing relationships, but here we're talking about putting yourself in the shoes of the donor and really trying to understand, um, frankly, making the uh, relatively, <laughs> making an awfully strong case for why development is a relationship business. That's what it is at its core. Um, I wanted to ask you about boards for a moment. And it, I have to say that it all, because I think of boards as so central to the, 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 the long-term sustainability of an organization, because I think that we don't do boards well as a sector, it does actually amaze me that even like foundations or donors, um, they don't pay a great deal of attention to the functioning of a board. Um, I think to myself, if I were, if I had the, the great good fortune that you have had, and I was going to give a multi-million dollar gift, I would want to sit down with the executive director and the board chair, and I would want to see if there was a trusted partnership there. Um, some site visit that I might make, they'll just you know, can, it could be window dressing, right? It's show and tell. 
But a real conversation with a board chair and an ED, I think, is quite revelatory at times. And I just wonder, in your own philanthropy, right, and you've also been on boards, how do you factor in, because the, the, the decision to, to make a gift, uh, small, medium, or large, is not just a heart decision, it's also a head decision. So I just wondered, how do you think about boards as it relates to your philanthropy? Uh, so, so I think about boards a lot as it relates to my philanthropy and philanthropy in general, I think, and having served on quite a few boards uh, of, of large and small organizations, I, I think that, um, well, one of the things that I do, for, two different pieces here, but for me, when I'm giving a gift, I like to know who's on the board. I always, always look online, even before a meeting, to see who's on the board. And if it's an organization with an office in California where I live, chances are good I will know somebody or some of the names of people who are on the board. And that means a lot to me. By the way, it also works the same in the uh, in the investment world. You know, if you're going to put, put, look at a stock or something or invest in a company, you want to know who's behind that. And so that that does have meaning. And 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 sometimes I will actually, if I know somebody, I'll actually call them and say, hey, I see you're involved. Can you tell me a little bit about why you're involved? If right. they say to me, yeah, I really don't go to anything. We really don't even have meetings very often. It's all kind of rubber stamp. And I just did it because my friend told me to. Yeah, I might think twice about, maybe three times about giving to that organization. But if they say, hey, I've been on the board for years. It is one of the most wonderful things that I do. I've gotten so much out of it. And they tell me their personal story about what it's meant to them. Yes. I'm much more likely to donate not only once, but a lot of times, and I don't need to have a lunch to do it. So yep. it's it's super important. But the other piece is that board members, back to your, your, your scenario about a board chair talking to the executive director, really, really important because if the board doesn't support the fundraisers, now the board, the board is the kind of board that sits, is kind of ivory tower-like, has their meetings, does not interact with the staff. And I have had nonprofits tell me, we don't want you really ever to talk to the staff. We don't want you to talk to the uh, the, the beneficiaries either. We don't want you to talk to our volunteers either. You stay in your board box, uh, which I think is a big giant mistake, but it was right. told to me very clearly. Uh, but, but the board members, again, like I said earlier, everybody involved with the organization should be raising money. The board members are responsible for uh, being ambassadors for, as well as I think volunteers, but for sure board members, ambassadors for the organization. They should know Absolutely. what the organization does, what the successes are and what the challenges are and what direction it's going in. And, and that's, to me, their responsibility. And if they're not interested in that, whereas one of the stories I tell in my book about one of the, is about one of the boards where they interviewed the board members and, and, and said, why are you on the board? And we went around the table and several people said, I'm on the board to make friends. And that was it. And there was nothing else. And I thought, wow, I'm not sure this is a board I want to be on because if that's what they're doing, that's, that's, I, I don't think that's appropriate. So I think that that's, that's one piece of it, but also the board is there to support the organization. And whether it's through a give and get or a give or get or helping through referrals, you know, if a board is looking for, the executive director is looking for an, whatever it is, uh, an auditor, you know, it makes sense that they would ask the people on the board who come from the financial industry and say, you know, do you have anybody you can recommend? Or I'm looking at these two people. Can you help me to choose? And not enough executive directors do that. A lot of them keep it very separate. And I know the reason why, having been on the other side, because they don't want to feel obligated to take that, to have to, oh, well, my board member said that they like, you know, Joe, whatever, I have to use him. 
But I think if there's a good relationship between the executive director and the head of the board, they won't have that fear. It's just Mm -hmm. we're all in this together. We all have our different seats and we're trying to to make this a better place and make this organization run better. I also think that uh, I hear a lot about board members saying to fundraisers and executive directors, I don't want to hear about your long-term plans. I don't want to hear about your multiple lunches or whatever it is. I want you to go get that money right now. Go call that guy. What have you done for me lately? Go get that money. And that's unfair. And that's one of the reasons why I'm actively trying to get my book into the hands of boards, as well as people uh, who are executive directors and development staff, because it's really important that they understand what a fundraiser's life is like and how difficult this is and how it is it, it, it is essential that there is a uh, there's support from the board for what the organization does in terms of raising money. Raising money is how they get to do to serve your mission and do what you wanted you can do. So why would there be that disconnect there? Well, and I, I mean, I think the other question that this raises is executive directors expect uh, air quotes there um, expect their boards. To, board members to actually ask for money right and 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 if you are not out at, somehow or another if you are not out asking for money that you are not fulfilling like like they would you please go raise money and leave me alone to do my job and that it's such a wrong-headed concept and frankly you know I talk a lot about the fact that um, I would much rather my board members be first-rate listeners and storytellers, and that if and be ignited to share those stories. So when I'm asked to do a fundraising training, I don't actually I don't do them. But if I'm doing a keynote speech and there's a workshop and they want me to do something around story uh, around fundraising, I say I will do I will talk about how to get your board to tell good stories, right? Um, but, but it is, it, it is, I, 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 it, the, the tension between the executive director and boards around their give or get and how much money they're asking for, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere. I mean, I don't think many board members, you know, sort of a lot of board members don't want to ask people for money. And so if they don't want to ask people for money, Let's just have them bring more people to the party. Right. That's exactly what they should do. And and it is interesting how I've had this conversation with loads of organizations and they say, yeah, but um, my again, like you just said, my board members won't raise money. They have to raise money. Uh, so first of all, they shouldn't be siloed. If you silo people, if you don't tell them what the organization's, if, if the organization, the staff is saying one thing about who we are and what we're doing, and the board is using something from a brochure from five years ago, that's destructive to the organization. It's, it's completely nonproductive. So forget the silo thing. People have different departments, just like in any business, you know, marketing department, and there's a sales department, but that's fine. But it doesn't mean that you work for different organizations. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't know what direction the, the, the ship is, is sailing in. So it's that needs to change. And then as far as the give and get piece, some people would like to contribute at their board by being there, by, by having their voice heard, by uh, advising the organization, and by giving money. And some people are there for different parts of those things. And they're all, if those things are what the organization needs, whatever that person has to contribute, then, then it's worth having them on the board. However, I do think that if 
And, and, and like I said earlier, they're your ambassadors. They need to know what's going on with the organization. They also need to know, you know, where are your pain points? You know, what, what's, where does the organization have a pain point? And lots of times people don't talk about that at all because they're, they say, tell me they're afraid that if the person hears that there's something not going beautifully, that they will go running for the hills and won't give. And it's completely the opposite. If yeah. I know that there's a pain point and I can help you with that, I feel it's much more gratifying for me as a donor and, and as somebody being in, as working as a volunteer with the organization, I, I want to help. If I feel like there's nothing for me to do other than sit in a meeting and rubber stamp stuff, I don't know who wants to be part of that board and just give you money when you want it. That is the most unfulfilling thing I can think of, unless I'm the kind of person, and there are some of these, who just want their name on a list to say I'm on a board and they want to put it on their biography and they don't want to do anything. And, you know, I guess there are people like that, but but there are. Not, Nonprofits should not think that that's going to benefit them to have that person on their board. So we just have a few more minutes and I, I want to, um, what do you think, what do you think it's going to take to turn this around? I mean, I, I, you know, I spent a lot of time with clients in 2020, um, uh, introducing the idea of board stewardship programs where they had portfolios of donors to be in contact with during a very difficult time. Um, and, um, yeah, I guess, I guess that's a question is sort of what, maybe I'll leave you two questions. One is what do you think it's going to take to turn this around? And then, um, well, let's take the, let me stop there. What do you think it's going to take? I think it's going to take, uh, well, you know, back to what we said. A, this a philanthropy revolution. revolution, right? Yes, it is. Uh, it's going, but I think it's interesting because I think that people are much more open-minded today than they were a year ago. Um, Agreed. So like you said earlier, because of COVID, there was a little bit of, it, it took an existential threat to have people open their minds and say, oh my gosh, if I'm going to survive, I need to do things differently. And, Correct. Uh, you know, I'm sort of thinking of Tom Hanks in that the movie where he's on the island and he's got to. You know, it's like change everything you know because you've got to survive. And I think that a lot of the um, what was Castaway? I think that's what it was called. Castaway, yeah. and the soccer ball was called was Wilson. I Wilson, think. that's right. So, so I think that um, we're in a really good place right now because we have all been uh, shaken to the core. We've all mm -hmm. been through an existential threat. And we had to try things in a different way. And when we tried those things in a different way, surprise, surprise, a lot of them worked way better than they did in the old days, in the before times. And Absolutely. So it concerns me deeply that I've talked to some people in the last few weeks who've said the following. I haven't talked to a donor live for a year. And now I'm going to go out and talk to donors. And I'm nervous because it's been a year since I've had lunch with them or talked to them. Uh, and I have, I'm very concerned because we missed our gala and we now have to make sure that we have our gala at the same time as we did last year or two years ago. And all of that, which means that they, they, they didn't listen to the world. They didn't listen to what's going on around them. And I'm never going to get to an organization where people talk that way, but, but it's not, it's not good for them to do it. And so I think that the, the, the people who have embraced the differences, the people who put on an online gala, uh, 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 Zoom gala, and everybody I know who did something like that uh, ended up making more money they, than they did at the offline gala. Now, granted, there's Me too. pieces this year, but right, everybody did. Yes. So those people, I can't even imagine for a minute they would say, uh, "We're you know we're going to go back to the old way because they made more money this way." And mm -hmm. and 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 they should think about that. But 
but this, that there's this pull to go back to what you were doing. And I think those people are going to be really kind of left in the dust and the organizations that are going, and I as a donor am going to look to fund organizations that learned a lot from this, that kind of got their kick in the butt they needed and now are much more comfortable with technology and realize they don't have to change everything to what it was during COVID, but they have to learn from that. And that becomes part of their arsenal of tools to raise money. So I am very hopeful that that almost organically that's going to happen now. And I, as a donor, I'm going to push for that. Um, I just feel like at the heart of what you're talking about in your book and in this really wonderful conversation is... Um, you know, here we are in a sector in which we are um, working across every imaginable arena to, to help people, to, to, to speak to what's truly human, right? And in many ways, your book is, is a call to say, um, like, speak to my humanity. Ask me about who I am as a human being, the things I care about, what I love. Do I like to untangle knots, right? Is, I, I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I, um, I came to the nonprofit sector with no fundraising experience and I, I, thought that was a liability and I think maybe it wasn't. Um, I mean, I don't think it was, I don't think it was the wisest move in the world to hire somebody with no fundraising experience when the organization was in the in a complete financial hot mess. But I just find people endlessly interesting. I think that when I have the opportunity to have lunch with someone whose life has changed overnight the way yours has, that it's such a gift for me to have the opportunity to essentially read your story, right? I get a chapter of your book. And, and if, if the chapter of the book aligns with my chapter of the book, then we develop some kind of rapport. And that may mean that there's an alignment with the organization that I run, and it might not. But I just feel like, and I don't mean to get schmaltzy about this, but I just feel like in a year of such terror, right, that touching people's humanity, right, that thinking about meaning and purpose in your life and offering that as an opportunity to you as a donor, right, um, to me, I mean, I you know, for me to give you the gift of being a part of my organization's family. Like these things matter. And, and I feel like they matter more today than they did in the before times. And I, I just hope that as you've listened to this today, that you've heard, that that's what you've heard, that the before times were not a whole lot to write home about. There were significant flaws in our sector, and I think Lisa has outlined some of them uh, in a, uh, a pretty stark way. But that Lisa's cry, Lisa's cry here is, we're all human, right? We're all playing for the same team. And I, by virtue, I, Lisa, by virtue of 
engaging with me, Joan. I have made a decision that I want to be involved in the world in a meaningful way. And that's a gift and that's to be honored. And I hope that our sector um, uh, really starts to actually embrace that because um, did we not learn that life is short? I think we did. Um, any last words of advice from you, Lisa Greer? I, I guess what I would just suggest is uh, that those of you who, who can uh, get a hold of the book, uh, it's really meant to be a guidebook that tells a lot of my story, but it's also meant to be the kind of thing where you can look up, oh, you know, how does a donor feel about boards or how does a donor feel about this? Yes. You actually look it up in that book so you can carry it around that way. Uh, but I just hope that everybody listening uh, will think of themselves as, well, be, maybe a little less intimidated by the idea of a donor after uh, hearing my story. I uh, am, you know, uh, they say, what is a People magazine, you know, the, the celebrities, they put on their pants one at a time, you know, you know, one leg at a time, or they're just like you. Really, we're all just individual humans in whatever it is that we do. And, and I would love to uh, to know that that any time I'm interacting with somebody from an organization that I'm not familiar with, that I can finish that conversation and say to my husband, I have this really interesting person today and they do this really interesting stuff. That's, I would love that. It makes me feel good too. So I hope that we see more of that. Uh, Philanthropy Revolution is Lisa Greer's book. You mentioned a blog. Where would we find your blog, Lisa? Thank you. You can go to lisagreer.com and get links to everything that I've I've done and I'm doing and my tip of the day as tip of the week, as well as my blog, which is called Philanthropy 451, because no surprise to any of you who've been listening, I think philanthropy is on fire. So uh, so that is uh, comes out about every 10 days or so. And we would really love to have your readers be part of that or your, your customers and clients and people, uh, fundraisers and board members and everybody can benefit from it. So I, I really appreciate the time. Oh, and I just want to say, um, right. Uh, Lisa may think that philanthropy is on fire, but she's. This book will offer you, um, uh, will hand you a couple of good hoses, um, and very practical. Um, you know what you hear, what you want to hear. I mean, there's a there. You know, there's a, there's so many different things, strategies that you can learn from in this book. This is um, uh, so. I um, I encourage my listeners to. Um, would be a very, very good thing to, you know, to, to, to use as a jumping off point for a conversation about what development really means and what relationships you really want to and need to have with um, the people who fund your programs. So um, Lisa Greer, I really appreciate the fact that you wrote this book and that you actually did go out on that limb that others wouldn't. And, um, and thank you for your remarkable generosity to the vast array of causes who are lucky enough to have you as a member of their family. So thank you so much for this conversation today. Thank you so much. Thank you for all you do. Um, so that's Lisa Greer. Philanthropy Revolution is her book. And that's it for today. And I just wanted to say, as always, stay safe. And thank you so much for all that you do. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. 
Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.